Hey everybody, it is time once again for the monthly Rotto Roundup. And man, we've got such a huge one, over 30 games to talk about. And at three minutes a pop, it's going to take us a while. But folks, you know, right, that you can just click on the links down in the show notes and just skip to any game you want. Plus there's run-throughs in case there's games you want to actually see in action. Links for that down in the show notes as well. But anyway, we've got... So much to talk about, myself and Shay and Kimberly and Ruel, all of us counting down the games uh, that we uh, played over the month from least favorite to most favorite that I got no time to tell you about our adventures on the road and all of that in the RV. So without any further ado, let's just get right to it. Shay, what do you got? Hey folks, you want to hear about the games I played? Good, because I got a list of them. Number six is Mycology. This is a very lightweight game about going into the woods, the meadows, wherever you find mushrooms, gathering them and studying them. This is a game where you are collecting resources and using those to pick out uh, mushroom cards from a tableau that you are uh, able to grab, uh, that every player are able to grab from, and placing them in different baskets. The baskets are correlating to different seasons, and that is going to determine which ones you are able to grab at any given point, because some mushrooms only really grow during certain seasons. At the beginning of each round, you're going to roll a die to determine what resources everyone gets. It's sort of like a very simplified version of like Machi Koro or Space Base, something like that. And while I like that system and I like that this game is very accessible, I wouldn't have minded if this game had a little bit more going on to uh, satisfy a little bit more of a, a strategic player. Um, this is a very lightweight game, very easy to get into, and it's got some gorgeous mushroom illustrations. So if you like mushrooms or think they're neat, then uh, it's a cool game for you. But uh, it also, I wouldn't have minded if, you know, the, the mushrooms that you got affected the resource that you get a, a little bit more than just getting points. There's also a little bit of ways to uh, sort of snatch mushrooms from other players or trade them with uh, ones that you have uh, in your baskets or protect yourself from that kind of thing. So there's a little bit uh, of competitiveness in that. Um, but uh, overall, very lightweight game, very easygoing, and uh, pretty easy to get into. Very cool illustrations, like I said. Um, I just wanted a little bit more, a little bit more depth in it personally. That was my, that was my only complaint. Um, but my number five is Weirdwood Manor. This is a game where is a co-op game where you are all finding yourselves in this large circular manor, and there are tons of different rooms, each with their own abilities. There's a the Lady Weirdwood at the center of the of the the castle, the manor, the the house that you're in, this big haunted house, and there is a monster, a fey monster that you're going up against. Now the fey monster, there's three different ones in the core box, and they're very different, uh, very asymmetric in terms of like what they present to you uh, as far as like you know, with the challenge that you're getting. So there's a lot of replayability between those. Also, the players that uh, the different characters that you're playing as provide a lot of different abilities. But what is really interesting about this game is uh, two two big things. One, the card play, because every time you're taking your turn, you're playing a card that goes into a certain slot on your player board, which corresponds to a different time of day. That time of day corresponds to a ring around the whole board. So you're rotating the ring to get to, uh, you know, the specific time of day matching the card you just played. And that's not just a timer. It is a timer. You know, you rotate that all the way around. That leads you to a new day. You know, new day is timing how much time you have left in the game. It also makes the monster stronger. But it's not just that. It is also a hallway between the different rooms. And sometimes the doors are closed or open, depending on where it is oriented. So it's going to determine which rooms you can access. So that is a really fascinating, uh, like, 
way to keep the game state it's constantly in motion now because of that i actually really liked this game at a lower player count um, i felt that at higher player counts it slowed down quite a bit and i just had a lot more fun playing it at two player than i did at four um, so I, I kind of wish that there was a way to, to mitigate that a bit for a higher player count. But otherwise, it's a great co-op game. Um, it's got a lot of differences. That, like there's different complexities based on the characters that you're playing, different complexities on the game based on the monster you're facing, as well as you can even play it in a more simplified family mode to make it easier. Uh, whereas, where uh, you know. Instead of counting each player's XP uh, of the three XP tracks that each player has, instead of counting those all separately, you all share a one big XP track, and you know you can uh, like you do well together, and so you gain all the benefits that you gain uh, as a group, and that's kind of a cool way to do that in a more simplified way. But again, I. Uh, I just wish this had a wider range of play count for my taste. Uh, I think that you know other people are going to like this at higher player count. Uh, it, it gives you a little bit more variety and a little bit more teamwork that you can you know, manage. I actually think three players is probably going to be the best play count, but um, for me, four was just a little bit too long. This is the only reason why it's you know, lower on my list. So let's move on to my number four, which was Marvel Zombies, a Zombicide game, or Marvel Zombicide, as I'm always going to call it. Uh, this is a Zombicide game. If you played a Zombicide game, it's similar, but Zombicide games are fun. Zombicide games tend to get a little bit of hate because they're, you know, CMON can kind of go a little bit... Um, overboard with their Kickstarters and all that. But Zombicide's just a fun game. It's a dungeon crawling game where you're playing as Marvel zombies. So in the run through that I played, I, uh, I had Iron Man and Captain Marvel and the Hulk all in their zombified forms. And they're, you know, got a little bit of their personality still intact, but they need to keep their hunger in check. The, the big thing for this game is that uh, one, you're playing Marvel heroes, so you're not going to be picking up just items uh, that wouldn't really be thematic instead you're collecting zombie traits these are one-time use abilities that provide you with some cool benefits but the bigger thing in my opinion is the hunger track everyone has a track of hunger goes from zero to four and as it increases you get stronger but if it gets all the way to the end then you have to then you are ravenous and so the only things you can do are move <coughs> and make a very specific type of attack the devour attack which if you use it to kill an enemy your hunger goes down to zero um, so, it's a cool game. It's a fun game. It is on the you know more straightforward side. I've definitely played a lot more complex, more intricate dungeon crawler kind of games, and sometimes I'll you know lean more towards those in my day to day. But I, I really enjoy the straightforward and just engaging narrative that the Zombicide games bring for you. Now, if you've gotten a ton of Zombicide games in the past, you maybe don't need this one, but I think that this is a great entry-level game. People who uh, really like Marvel are probably going to like this one. People who are getting into board games and want something, a, a bigger experience, this absolutely provides that. It has that great Zombicide like power creep of the enemies because they get stronger and stronger, and then all of a sudden, you've got hordes of enemies. In this case, they're shield agents, but... They're a lot like zombie hordes, and they're, it, it provides those situations where it seems like, oh man, we are not going to be able to make it, but you're heroes. You're zombie heroes, but you're heroes, and so you're able to do these really powerful attacks, and it, it, is, uh, it is a constantly shifting you know, situation with your, with your hunger level and the, the cards that you have, but it, it provides a really engaging experience. So... Uh, my number four was Marvel Zombies. My number three was a big game by Ivy Studios. It was really, uh, really marketing their game very well. 
I actually played this, uh, played Fractured Sky, which is the game, uh, on three different channels. I did Rado Run Through, I covered it on, uh, I, I played it with uh, Brothers Murph, and I played it with Becca over at Good Time Society, and I had a blast every time I played it. This is a great game. It's sort of an area control slash bluffing game where you have this uh, land of floating islands and you're sending your airships to different spaces and when you send an airship, you choose the power level that it has. You have two little chips, they're sort of magnetic chips that snap to the bottom of it, and you can, you will get different, uh, you will choose which power level it has before you send it out. The trick is the power level of all three airships that you send can only equal uh, 10 or lower. So you can't be like, I'm gonna put my nine, my eight, my seven on these. No, that doesn't work. Uh, so you have to you have to do a little bit of math to do that, but it's always easy to figure out what you need to put out. Well, you're also kind of determining, trying to figure out, okay, how much, how much are they putting over there? Are they putting in their big ship on this space? In which case, do I want to match them? Or maybe I don't care. Maybe I'll put in a weak one because I want to get second place on this anyway. Because all these locations, yes, you're going to get points for some of them, but not all of them. What all the locations do give you is resources. And there uh, is a a way of determining how much you get based on you know the order, the, like the ranking of strength in those locations. There's also little buildings you can build which will give you uh, generate resources or give you extra strength. And so it's a really cool system. It's it's easy to get into. It's it's really fun to play. I really enjoyed it. It's uh, I think they're doing a really good job. I think Ivy Studios in general puts out puts a lot of work into their production value, and it shows. I think they did a really good job with it. So that was Fractured Sky, my number three. And if that's my number three. Yeah, next two gotta be pretty good, and they are. My number two, Monster Hunter World Iceborne. Now this is a standalone sequel expansion game to the Monster Hunter World board game, which I think is reaching backers about right now or recently. And this is following the Monster Hunter video game where you are uh, a team of monster hunters and you are choosing your uh, target. So you've got a big monster, you know it's out there, you're gonna go and get it and you start off by going through a um, like a gauntlet of, of different little challenges, and that's kind of just narratively setting up your fight. So it's going to put you in potentially a good position, a bad position, or a mixture of this. And once you get into the fight, you are going up against a big monster. The way you do that is you have a hand of cards, and so you'll, these cards will determine you know what you're able to do: their movements, their attacks, their little events that might you know help you out in some way. And you play them into a little stamina board, which has five slots. So you might think, okay, cool, everyone gets to play their cards, and the enemy goes. Not quite. Instead, what happens is that you see an enemy card. That's the enemy's intent, and so you know a little bit what's coming. And so at the beginning game, the enemy gets to go first, or it draws a card, and it'll do something and it might attack you right away. It'll attack you know, based on how close you are, how far away you are. It'll do some movement first. It will attack in an arc, or it'll attack at range, or it'll do something. It'll do an elemental attack versus a physical attack. So a lot of different things that it could be, and you get a little bit of preparation. And then after the attack, it'll say, two heroes can go and play three cards, or four heroes can go, but they can only play two cards, or something like that. And then it, sometimes, if it's a really big attack, it'll have to charge up. And so one unit will be able to go before the enemy gets to attack, and then a couple more units, a couple more players will be able to go afterwards. So it presents this really interesting uh, mechanic of figuring out when to, when best to play your turn. Because after you've gone, you can't go again until everyone else has gone as well. 
So it's theoretically, it's possible to go twice in a row if like the other three players have gone and then you take the last turn and then we will sort of clear our uh, you know exhausted tokens and then you can go again. But more likely, you're gonna have to wait a little bit before you're able to go again. So you need to balance each player's turns and uh, the abilities that you do. On top of that, the weapons that you're bringing in are gonna determine a lot of what you do. A lot of the armor that you're uh, that you're wearing will help you prepare for the opponents, gives you defense, gives you uh, ways to mitigate certain types of attacks, things like that. And those are all things that you are getting and crafting based off of the loot that you're pulling off of the monster. It has a really fun combat system. It's one of the best, like, you know, uh, com like boss battle or combat systems that I've played in a while. Really enjoyed it, and uh, and I had a really good time playing with that. Now there's a there's gonna be a gameplay video on that for on the um, on Steamforged uh, their YouTube channel. They're gonna put up a gameplay video with myself and Ashton from Shelfside and Jesse from Quackalope, as well as the lead designer himself. But if you want to hear more about the game, especially the campaign mode, I did a uh, an interview with the lead designer, and uh, I go into a lot of detail about that. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. But my number one game. This game, oh man, it's good. I got to play it at Dice Tower West and I liked it so much, I played it once and then some other people came by and were asking about it and I decided I'm gonna play this again right now. I played it back to back and I just got to play it again uh, yesterday. I was playing it with uh, the Brothers Murph. I was just over there playing a game with them. So I was playing uh, the game called Earth. In this game, you are Earth? You're the concept of Earth? You're an island or something like that. You you're doing is you're seeding your island with different flora, different bits of mushrooms and trees and shrubs and all kinds of stuff. But what the game is, it is an engine builder. Engine building is one of my favorite genres of games in general. But this game has a really satisfying uh, way of playing it out where uh, you are gonna get a handful of cards and those cards have all kinds of different abilities and when you play them, you're gonna play them into a four by four grid that you sort of develop as you're playing it. And that's important because when you activate abilities, which are activated based off of the four types of actions that can be played. So, you know, if you take, if someone takes the um, play a card action, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, Roll for the Galaxy, where you know they get to do the big version of the action, everyone else gets to do a smaller version of the action. But if you've got cards that correspond to that action type, they are going to get you a bonus as well. But they're gonna go from left to right and top to bottom, uh, English reading order, basically. So where you position your cards matters because of, you know, you want to get, uh, you want to generate resources in the beginning and then have the cards that you spend those resources to get bonuses. And on top of that, this game is just so generous. It is one of those games where you're gonna get a lot of points from a lot of different ways. If I had any criticism, the only one would be that the scoring at the end takes a little while because you're scoring for uh, the cards that you've played. You're scoring for the growths on the cards, little seedlings, that, little cubes that you've placed on the cards, little trees that you've grown. It's like stacking up little wooden tiles. You know, you're scoring for that. You're scoring for all the compost, all these cards that you've thrown away in a special pile. You've got special cards that, you know, uh, uh, Temper, temperate, uh, no, um, tempest, no, I don't remember what it's called, uh, but like end game scoring cards that you've put into your tableau, they don't do anything, but they do get you points if you can really manage it. There's end game scoring uh, objectives that you're going for. There's all kinds of ways that you can score. So there's a lot of different things that you can think about, but you're usually able to focus on a lot of them. It's not like you have to stick on with one thing. You can kind of see where the board is and, and go for a lot of different things. Maybe not everything, but a lot of different things. And so 
it presents a really, really fascinating board state. It really feels different pretty much every time that I've played anyway. You can go for a lot of different strategies. Um, the starting cards that you get give you a lot of different avenues to go for, but they don't lock you into any strategy either. And so it is just a really, really good engine building game that I highly recommend. So yeah, that is my number one uh, number one game of this month. It might be uh, a number one game of the year. It's, it's really that good, or at least I think it is. That was my number one game, Earth. But that that's it for me. So I will see you folks next time. Bye, folks. Happy Roundup, everybody. Kimberly here, and it's really great to have Richard back safe and sound after all that RVing. So what my Roundup includes this month is not just April, but also March, and one of my games uh, that I played this last month that I wanted to include on my list. So I'm going to start off with my fourth favorite. It's Vidur, and Vidur was a March run-through for me. So this game has deck building and action selection. And the cool thing about it is every player turn is so juicy. You have a main action that you do, but you also have a bonus action. And when it comes to your turn again, you have to move that marker. So you can't choose the same main action and the same bonus action. And it just makes the, the, the um, connections or the, the computations of your actions endless and really cool. And I just felt like I had enough choice on my turn when I wanted to really draft super cool cards and buy them from the public display area, if I wanted to use a super cool bonus that only my character could do. And it just is satisfying. It's really, really satisfying. And there's just the right amount of player interaction, honestly. There are public goals that you are contributing to, but really you want to be the one to finish those goals in Vedur. A uh, fantastically wonderful Viking-themed game for two to four players. Moving on to my number three is Holotype. And Holotype was a run-through that I did in April. And it's got yet again another lovely theme. It's dinosaurs. And you are paleontologists digging up fossils and bones, going to the library and doing research, and publishing that research that you find on dinosaurs. And they're those holotypes that you find in the deck. And these dinosaurs have all different kinds of characteristics and traits that matter for the global objectives that people are vying to um, essentially rush out and publish on based on the collective number of icons in everybody's player area. But they also matter for your personal objective, which might be get a bunch of herbivores or get a balance of herbivores and carnivores. But in this, players have these pawns and they are placing them out into open spaces or bumping other players or your, your player, your color, you can bump out too, as long as you follow the hierarchy rules. So this is a worker placement, but workers are of different sizes or heights. And so you've got your paleontologist, uh, then you've got your middle person, which is your grad student, then you've got your assistant, and they're kind of like the lowest. And they also give you a different kinds of bonuses or benefits when you go to the locations. And there are five. So, yeah, you're like, oh, I can really send my research assistant out here because I want to send my paleontologist out to do this. So it, it's really fun. It just moves along at a really nice pace. Um, and it's just a clean game. I found myself really enjoying it and pulling it out um, even more than I thought I would. So Holotype is my third favorite for this roundup. Moving on to my second favorite, this is Earth. Earth is uh, really kind of stunning everybody right now, and I think there's a lot to like about Earth. That's why it's so high up on my chart. It's super replayable with the massive amount of cards for your habitats and your climates and your ecosystems and your 
your fauna, um, and of course with all of the different uh, like earth cards that you get that you get to play from your hand, including event cards. It's so scalable because you can play all the way to five and that's a really fun, like just, I mean, all the way around the table, it takes five, <laughs> it takes four, four, you know, intermediate uh, first player until it comes back to you. Um, but you're just playing down your cards in a 4x4 grid in front of you. If someone finishes their grid, that triggers the end of the game. So games are super fast. Um, they they last about an hour, maybe 70 minutes. But it goes to one. There's a solo. And I really enjoyed the solo play. It, it gave me a chance to kind of do what I wanted to do and not worry about anybody else. Because the solo really does run itself quite well. And I found it to be super balanced. Um, even though I was being... I was <laughs> I was beaten so many times by the solo, <laughs> um, but that's okay. That means that it's challenging and it's really fun. Um, so in this, you've got these bamboo shoots and you're building up little tree trunks and you've got sprouts and you're you're just kind of, you're collecting dirt so that you can buy and invest in more um, you know earth and, and different kinds of plants and trees and stuff. And so lovely theme again, super super high with theme. I think my three like four, three and two are just like massive, massive on theme, which is interesting because my number one maybe doesn't hit theme as hard, but gives me that juicy two-hour, like, medium-heavy game that the other three don't give me, and I think that's one reason why it rose to the top of my favorites, and the game is Revive. I finally got a chance to play Revive, and it's got a lovely five-game campaign built into the game that gives you super cool stuff to unlock as you go with more components and elements to the game. But the reason I like this is because it's that two-hour juicy game, and I just, I love it. I love the exploration that's part of this because there's a big old board and all these tiles and you want to flip them over and find stuff and you want to build houses next to things because they give you resources because you're coming out from underneath the earth after like terrible, terrible, um, you know, devastation and you're, you're discovering the, the, the top land again. You're discovering, you know, the area. And you also are playing these cards into these slots and you can play your cards so that you activate the top part of your card or you activate the bottom part of your card. And there's a wonderful choice that just makes you feel like every turn you're like, oh, what am I going to do on my turn? And it's got this really nice, just players just go back and forth taking turns in my case, a two-player, but you just go around the table and you just keep you just keep playing turns until the last artifact is taken, and that's going to trigger the end of the game. And so you just keep playing, and you play uh, two actions on your turn, or you just reset and kind of recharge, getting resources, and you know take all the cards out of your slot so they're free again for your next turn. And so it just has this very easy feel to it. It makes me. Um, you know, feel like, oh, my turns are, I do one thing, I do two things, done. And there are five things to pick from, so it's not so complex that you can't get your head around it, but there are a lot of choices in it. And so Revive, for me, really just uh, rose to the top, and I cannot wait to finish that campaign, unlocking all the really cool things in it. So for me, that was my favorite, and that was just a game that I played um, just here in my house. <laughs> but really enjoyed it and had a uh, really great March and April full of lovely games. So that was it for me, and I'll toss it back to you. Hi friends, Ruel here to talk about the games I played in the month of April. Now I'm going to kick things off with an honorable mention. Uh, this was on my channel. I played a solo game of Ecosfera. 
Uh, this was a Kickstarter preview that I did. Um, it's a really cool nature theme game where you're trying to rewild the world uh, by creating biomes and you do that through cooperative deck building. A very cool um, concept and what you do, you start with the elements and um, it's your starting deck and you're eventually trying to get those elements into fungi and plants and those plants when they come up they're trying to attract animals and those animals when you match them all up they're going to start bringing the biomes and your object of the game is to get seven biomes before you get seven extinct tiles. So of course disaster cards come in to play they clog up your deck a really cool uh, way to do deck building it doesn't actually have like currency on it uh, you're just trading elements and so forth for uh, fungi or plants and those plants um, uh, and fungi go into animals and those uh, come in to bring the dot biomes really cool way to do it and instead of you know, using currency you can you know there's special abilities that let you grab extra cards into uh, you know discard and trash cards very, very cool game. I'm looking forward to seeing more from Jewelerbert Games. So that's my honorable mention. Uh, let's start with the uh, number five on my list. I'm ranking them five through one. Uh, and it was Point City. Uh, you saw it here, right here on the channel. You also saw it on my channel where I play the solo game. It's the standalone sequel to Point Salad. I love Point City. Um, it took everything I like about Point Salad and just made it meatier. Uh, you know, taking a salad, make it meatier, right? <laughs> a little more meat on the bones. Uh, you have a little more decision, a uh, few more decisions to make. And it's just a little more complex, but not so complex that a new gamer couldn't get it, right? So, you know, new gamers, you, I would bring Point, I still bring Point Salad to, you know, uh, friends that are getting into games or brand new to them or family events. And we always have a good time with it. It's very simple drafting game uh, then you're scoring points based on what you've drafted you know through set collection uh, point city does the same thing but it adds this really cool element of engine building and it's very much like splendor where you're getting cards and then as you build your buildings your city you know those cards will give you discounts on other cards and you'll bring them into your little tableau oh it's so so good i really really enjoy this one um you know if i had to choose one I'd probably go with Point City, folks, and that's why it's my number five uh, game that I played in April. Okay, number four, you also saw it here on the channel, Project L with the Finesse Expansion. Now, I was excited about this because Boardcubator, the company, had actually gone out of business last year. Uh, you know, one of the Kickstarters didn't do as well as they thought it would, so they just decided, you know what, we're just going to fold the company. But... Thankfully, it's, they've risen from the ashes uh, thanks to, um, you know, their, uh, the new uh, reprint of um, Project L. They put that up. And, you know, speaking of rising from the ashes, they have a new expansion called Phoenix. So Project L is one of my all-time favorite uh, tile lane games. It, it's definitely a top three for me. And for years, I was, uh, and for a while, I was really hesitant to recommend it because it was out of print. Because this company, it was really hard to get. And then the company folded. And I just figured, well, that's that. Thankfully, this Kickstarter was really successful. They're back. They're printing them. And I believe you can late pledge now. But, oh boy, it's tile lane and engine building mashed together with a little bit of Ubongo without the real-time element. So you have these Tetra-style pieces. You have puzzles to, um, you know, complete. And as you do that, you're going to get more pieces, which, you know, has that engine building element to it. And then the project, or the um, finesse expansion, this is what I love. It adds another currency, which gives you extra actions and gives you sort of like these um, in-game goals to work towards. And I thought it was such a cool design to begin with, but then the 
finesse expansion just took it up to the next level and i give it my highest recommendation if you're a tile lane fan so that's uh project l with the finesse expansion uh, my number three for april was paperback the 10th anniversary edition again you saw it right here on the channel I love word games. Y'all know I'm a word nerd. I love these games. Uh, Scrabble. I do crosswords. I love them all. Paperback is my all-time favorite game. And for the 10th anniversary edition, I mean, first of all, I can't believe it's been 10 years since this game uh, came out. But boy, oh boy, they have really taken the core game and made it better in every way. So you can still play OG Paperback. You know, it's a mash between uh, Dominion and Scrabble. You're building words uh, through deck building. But they've just done everything better in this version. They've added a variant where you can draft, um, you know, uh, draft rather than just um, do it on a, you know, fixed tableau. You can draft uh, amongst your fellow opponents. Uh, they also added this uh, typos in there, uh, which are, you know, things that sort of, you know, clog up your deck. And then for what you saw here on the channel, what I love is the solo variant. So the original one had a solo variant of the original paperback. It was a cooperative one, a cooperative mode, which basically you just play by yourself. And what they did here is so good. They took the solo variant and added an AI and a little spatial element to it. So this AI is like the spy. You're playing this like spy novel. So you, the spy is trying to go around and grab letters from you and, you know, or put influence or pressure on you. And if they put four cubes on any one card, you automatically lose. And there's a way that the, you know, AI moves around and you can, you know, sort of plan your moves. Again, you're, you're building words and trying to get those oh so precious points and in order to knock off the uh, spy. I think it's so, so good, and that's why I love Paperback 10th Anniversary 10th anniversary Edition. Okay, number two on the list. You saw it again here on the Rotter Runs Through channel. You also saw it on my channel where I play the solo game. Let's go to Japan. Now, once I started playing this and getting into it, I was thinking about our fellow contributors here on the channel, Amy and Maggie of Thinker Themer. I thought about theme and mechanism, and I love the blend of it here in this game. Um, it's a tableau builder, and the theme is you're planning your, a trip to Japan. And through card drafting and, my gosh, I, I just, I love the tableau in this because it really does look like a little, like, one-week planner or calendar as you're going to Japan. So you're drafting cards, and it's like, hey, I'm going to go to Tokyo on this day. I'm going to go to Kyoto here. I have to take the train here. Um, I'm going to go eat some ramen or sushi. I'm going to go to a museum. Hey, I might see a sumo match. I all kinds of stuff, and you're trying to, um, you know, line these up uh, three events per day, and then um, trying to link them up so you get the most points possible, of course. But what really shines, and it's really neat, Richard had mentioned in his video, at the end of it, when you're doing the end game scoring, you know, you're, you're going along Sunday, you start on Sunday, go through the week. And what you can do is you narrate your trip to Japan. It's so cool. It's like, oh, it's Sunday. I started in Tokyo. And Michelle and I, we went to go get ramen. And then afterwards, hey, we went to a museum. And the next day, we traveled by train to Kyoto. It's so cool. And you're tracking points at the end of the game, you know, as you're doing this stuff. It's like, oh, I, you know, I didn't have a train to take from here to here. So I'm losing points. So, so good. I love the marriage of theme and mechanism in this so shout out to joshua the designer he's done another wonderful tableau builder i loved his game santa monica i love let's go to japan even more okay so my number one game of the month was something i didn't stream but you saw it here shay played it here on the channel mosaic a story of civilization uh this is a heavier game but what i really appreciate about mosaic is that the turns are really snappy and it's very very intuitive 
So, you know, I, I want to shout out my buddy Daryl for teaching the game. He brought his copy over um, last week. We just, you know, we played a two-player game. I really enjoy this. It's a civilization building game. Uh, it's got card drafting, area control. You know, it is heavier, but, you know, we played our, um, you know, it was the first time I was playing it. So two-player game under two hours. And, you know, within the first couple of turns, I was like, okay, yeah, it just flows really well. And, you know, it's going to be a game that, you know, for a civ building game, it's going to be a little faster than normal. So, you know, you think of like, you know, you're through the ages, it's hours and hours upon end. I can see this one just going by really quickly at, you know, a higher player count. Um, so thanks to, you know, my buddy Daryl for teaching me, but really those turns are so good. I mean, you're just, you know, doing one action, uh, trying to draft cards that, you know, you really, you know, so you can influence the different areas uh, for the area majority. You know, you have your standard military, technology, population, and so forth. A really cool balancing act because every turn you're going to want to do something, you know, that I want to do this, but I know my buddy's going to do that. I don't want to leave that card there, so I'm going to take it. But, oh, that leaves that open. That's The game is full of those moments. It's pretty much from the get-go, from, uh, you know, the first round all the way to the end. I always felt like that. It's just very tense but not like overly ah i'm not like not destroying my brain but a really well done design oh that's why it's my number one for the mosaic story of civilization now i want to do one bonus game so we had an honorable mention had my five games i want to do a bonus game folks um because of uh, one thing here i want to thank you all uh for the well wishes and condolences uh, my father passed away in April. Um, very, very sad. Um, my family's getting through uh, through it together. We've got a lot of support. And I want to do, uh, thank you all again for the, your kind, kind words. It really does mean a lot to me and my family. And as I've gone back to work here, you know, slowly but surely, I had an opportunity to hang out with the Tabletop News crew. And uh, they, they funded their Kickstarter. They had me out in studio um, a couple of weeks ago. And we played Mousetrap. Yes, the classic kids game from back in the day. It's silly. Am I going to recommend the game? Probably. No, I'm not going to recommend it unless you have kids or you just want some silliness because it reminded me when we played the game, we I had the one of the best times I've had in recent times at the tabletop um, with this fantastic crew. Uh, Michelle Wynn Bradley and Katie Wilson, I want to thank them for having me over and we got to play games. A game of Mousetrap that was silly, fun, and exactly what I needed. Um, and it served as a reminder, folks. These things, are, as much, as serious as we get about games, they're fun and silly as well. So go have some fun. Go play some great games. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Wow, that was a lot. Thank you, Shay and Kimberly and Ruel for making the time. And um, also want to throw in a uh, special shout out to Ruel. Man, my condolences. I, I know what you're going through. I lost my mom and my brother uh, within the last year. And it's, it's so hard. And I'm glad... So glad to see you're on the mend, partially through the healing power of games, which is awesome. That was a very cool uh, loop you threw me for. I didn't know you were going to have that extra little uh, shout out there at the end for something that looked like a lot of fun. There's links for that down in the show notes, folks. Uh, well, I hope you're doing well. If you ever need anything, let me know. Now, we've gotten to the part where I'm going to tell you about all the games Jen and I played mostly while we were on the road for our final weeks of RVing. 
I'll be doing it in countdown format, least favorite to most favorite. But before we get to that, got one more contributor game that we should really talk about. And I was super duper impressed by Expedition. Amy and Maggie covered this. And I got to warn you folks, this is going to be a hard game to get your hands on because it was uh, published in Korea. And that's pretty much the only place it's available right now. So if you are outside of South Korea, you're going to have to contact the publisher directly and have it mailed to you. But if you love deck builders that totally reinvent the genre, you might want to check it out. It uh, You can uh, follow the links down in the show notes to go check out the run-through to see if it's worthwhile. I think it is because it is racing and exploring through a jungle uh, using your deck full of expedition members. But what really sets this aside from other deck builders, including Reiner Kenichi's uh, Quest for El Dorado, is the way you handle your deck. Because you try to squeeze everything you can out of it. Um, because your deck does not automatically once emptied out, just get reshuffled and you keep drawing from it. Once you run out of cards, that's it. And you have to basically retreat from the jungle, come back to your base camp, reset your deck entirely, and that's also when you can buy new cards. And it sounds like a little change to the core uh, deck builder formula that you know Dominion has solidified for all of us, but man, this game feels so fresh and interesting and unique and tension-filled, and it's got amazing art. And again, you can check out Amy and Maggie's run-through to see why it's so special. I really hope this gets picked up for wider distribution. It deserves it. Okay, all contributors are out of the way, so let's move on to Jen's and my games, starting with number 15 on the list, Voices in My Head. Now, I have to admit, I have been super excited to try this game ever since I first heard about it from designer Corey Kanichia, and he always produces really interesting, different, unique, and very sharply considered designs, and that's all very true here. This game is so unusual. Uh, the the premise is basically, there's a guy who is on trial for robbing a bank, and he's totally guilty. He did it. But we don't play as the guy. We don't play as members of the jury. We don't play the prosecution, the judge, or any of that. Actually, one player does play the prosecutor, and all the other players play the voices in Guy's head. Whether you are honesty, or guilt, or showmanship, or whatever it might be, you have your own private secret objective that you are trying to see happen, whether you want Guy to be found innocent or guilty, or whether you want certain types of jurors to vote in certain ways. Everybody has their own secret goal, and every round, the prosecutor player <clears throat> is going to pick a card that represents a scene from a, a, a big trial movie. And um, everybody knows, well, okay, this scene that the prosecutor player, who obviously wants uh, the guy found guilty to be able to win the game, uh, is going to maybe focus on Guy's intuition and is memory or something like that. And nobody, know, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, but everybody knows those are the important mental elements. And so, um, in response to revealing that card, or revealing the subject of that card, everybody plays this little, um, oh, what would you call it, uh, dexterity game. Let's see if I can find a better picture on Board Game Geek of the dexterity game. Uh, let's see. Come on, is there ever a zoomed-in one? Okay, yeah. So basically, uh, on a player's turn, they get to take one of their chips that represents their, um, you know, the, the their voice in Guy's head, and you get to play a little shoving pog game, uh, pushing your uh, particular agenda to the different region of Guy's brain. There we go. There's a good picture of it. And what you're trying to do is get area control over these different um, sections. Whether you want to have area control of intuition because you think that's going to be a really important 
important thing right now. And um, you're also trying to shove everybody else off. And your uh, pogs have different values for area majority. They have special powers when you activate them. And it's just a silly good time. Uh, uh, you know, there's a storytelling comedy element of the trial itself. There's hidden roles where you're trying to figure out, do you want him innocent or guilty? What are you trying to achieve? Are you actually trying to help me without even realizing it? Because we both want the same thing. And then there's this uh, little uh, pushing uh, pogs, uh, uh, you know, uh, dexterity game too. So. Why is it coming in at the bottom of the list? Well, officially, this is a three-player minimum game, but the developer put out rules for a two-player variant. And that's what Jen and I tried. And I gotta say, it functioned, but it did not uh, capture, I think, the fun spirit of the game. This is really interesting. This is kind of like a party game, but a party game for gamers. Because if you turn on all the different modules, the special powers and whatnot, there's a lot to keep track of. There's a lot to consider when you're doing this storytelling uh, dexterity game. So you want to have a big group of players, but a big group of players with a sense of humor, a sense of whimsy, and an ability to um, you know maintain in their headspace all these different special powers that you can do. So I like this game in theory, um, but in practice, the two-player rule set that has been released as an official variant just took away almost all the stuff that makes the game unique and special. Uh, the area control became a little bit more straightforward. There is no prosecutor player, so it's just random prosecution scenes that are chosen. And um, it worked. We found it interesting, but uh, yeah, I would not suggest this as a two-player game. I'm still excited to someday maybe try this at a higher player count, the way it's supposed to be played, but as it is, Voices in My Head comes in at number 15. Then, let's move on to number 14, <clears throat> Polynesia. From the diner, Pierre Sylvester and I have really enjoyed a lot of Pierre's designs over the years. And I gotta say, this game has such a gorgeous production quality to it. I mean, it is just a great looking game where uh, in the Polynesian Isles, we are tribal leaders trying to get our people to safety because a volcano is gonna blow. And there's a huge archipelago full of islands that have all kinds of things that we want to get our meeples to. Uh, because whoever has the most meeples on a given island controls that island. Whoever is the first to a given island can maybe pick up bonuses that are on that island. And if you have your meeples on some of the islands, they automatically, at the end of every round, harvest the resources you need to be able to get more meeples actually spread out um, as everybody's trying to get away from the volcano. Now, what makes this game interesting and unique is the fact that um, we're trying to basically route build. On a player's turn, one of the things you can do instead of moving meeples around is deploy little uh, ships to connect the different islands and declare well, to be able to use this ship, you have to pay fish or whatever resource you want it to be. And the interesting thing is, that means from now point on, you can use that, your ship, to move your meeples out, but everybody else can use your ship as well, if they pay you. Now, we've seen stuff like this before, but then there's an extra twist. If you want to use my ship to move your meeples to safety, you have to pay me, and one of my meeples has to be 
in the area so that my meeples can actually um, pull, uh, you know, direct your meeples across my ship. And that means you are not only paying me for using my ship, but you're moving my meeples for me. Either I'm happy about that because I want to get my meeples out further, or I'm not happy about that because I had my meeple on that island because I wanted to stay on that island. So there's a lot of really interesting interaction between players in this game. And uh, it's smooth, it's fast. Uh, every time you play, you're getting a different combination of a... Um, <clears throat> different objective cards uh, that will you know change the overall flow of the game and what everybody's uh, trying to you know complete and uh, and it's just a lovely looking game my only complaint about it is there are a couple of rules to tighten the board up for two players and they work uh, the most important one is at a higher player count multiple people can build ships on the same lane and then I've got to choose whose ship am I going to use or am I going to build my own ship but if I build my own ship I have to pay the people who've already uh, built a ship previous to me that is gone in the two-player game. Uh, again, as a way of tightening up the board, right? So that um, it forces interaction between two players. And I appreciate that. It works. It is eventually a tension-filled game. But a big part of the game is gone. Um, because in a two-player game, uh, you know, well, I end up taking these lanes, you end up taking that lanes, and it's just kind of written in stone. There's a little bit less dynamism than there would be at a higher player count game. So, while I think it works well, and I appreciate how smartly it was stripped down for two, I still found myself wishing, boy, I would love to play this at more players. Because, you know, it's an area control game. Area control games are generally better with more players vying for control and coming in second and all that kind of stuff. And in a two-player game, it works. It definitely works, just not quite as compelling as I think it might otherwise be, which is why Polynesia comes in at number 14. Then we move on to number 13, Sumatra. Now, this is a uh, relatively new game. Actually, not. It came out in 2020. So, uh, you know, on the trip, folks, we were catching up on a lot of older games when we, Jay and I were on the road in our RV, and I had taken Sumatra along to play because I've wanted to play it for quite a while. And uh, from Reiner Knizia, it is a set collection game where we are running expeditions through Sumatra, uh, doing, uh, you know, gr grabbing little tiles that represent interacting with the locals, exploring villages, climbing volcanoes, gathering the equipment we need to do all this stuff. And as we grab these tiles, we put them in our own journal and we fill up our journal from left to right. And every type of tile has a unique function. This game uh, actually has a fair bit to learn because you have to learn how, what is it? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I think it's like 10 different types of tiles. Uh, all have their own little quirks and tweaks. And you can't collect everything. So you've really got to focus on, am I going to work on my equipment? Am I going to work on um, you know, seeing the flora and or the fauna? Am I going to try to get to as many villages as possible? What is it that I'm going to do? Uh, you know, because again, you really have to kind of pick and choose what sets you are trying to collect for. But what really makes this game interesting is the way that the draft works. Because at any given time, um, when we reach a new area you know, on the uh, in Sumatra, as we move our little meeples along the map, new tiles come out. The first player to enter an area gets first dibs on those tiles. And when we 
are both in the same area, you and I, and we're both looking at, oh, here's all the tiles that are available to us to grab. I might say, oh, I really want some of these tiles. Or I might say, oh, these tiles aren't particularly good for me at all. You know what? Rather than sticking around and trying to grab some, I'm going to be the first to forge further along the trail on the map. And that means I'll get first dibs on the next collection. And that puts the pressure on you, because then on your turn, you have to decide, well, am I going to stick around and try to hoover up some of these last tiles here? Or am I going to race to catch up? Because the new stuff that came out is even better than what's available to me. And so, it's basically a very nice thematic representation of a constantly variable turn order. Who gets first dibs on the tiles as they come out? Not just because of some arbitrary, oh, the first player marker changed hands, but because players are deciding, do I stay where I am and try to grab these last few tiles that may be useful to me, or maybe kind of um, less useful to me, depending on what uh, set collection I'm trying to do or whatever? Or do I rush ahead to get access to the first stuff and leave everybody behind? It's sharp. Both Jen and I enjoyed it. And once again, this is going to be a situation where it works well at two, but at a higher player count, it's going to be a lot more interesting. A lot more tiles come out uh, because at higher player counts. So you have a lot more options. You have a lot more opportunities. And uh, there's a little bit more depth with the whole core game of deciding whether you're going to move forward or stay behind. Because in a two-player game, once somebody moves forward, the other player pretty much has to move forward very quickly. Um, whereas at the higher player count game, more players might be staying behind because there's more stuff. You're tempted to fall behind to get more things. That happens less in the two-player game because there are just fewer tiles available to draft. So... We thought it worked as a two-player, but this game, really, you want to have a higher player count, I think, to get the most out of number 13, Sumatra. Then we go on to uh, number 12, Stellarian. Now, this is the latest game in the Oniverse uh, series from designer uh, Shady Torbay. I believe. I believe. That's right. Anyway, uh, and like all the Oniverse games, this is a beautiful dreamscape world, universe, uh, where we are doing, in this game, we are running um, obs observatories, stellar observatories, trying to um, launch missions to the stars. And to do that, we need to set collect. There are four different galaxies we're trying to launch missions to, and for each mission we launch, we need to have a ship, and we need to plot out the nebulas, the stars, and the planets. And once you have a collection of all four of those cards, uh, you know, one of each, for a given galaxy, you can launch a mission. And if you launch enough missions, you win. But how do you get those cards? Well, at the center of the table, there are eight decks, small decks of eight to 10 cards each. And you know, before you start playing, what the composition of each deck is. You know, this is a deck full of ships. This is a for each of the galaxies. This is a deck full of galaxy cards with nebulas and ships and uh, stars and uh, planets. And um, there's always one card face up on every deck. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to manipulate these decks, massage these eight decks so that you can make the right combination of cards appear so that you can can launch a mission. And again, this is a game all about tracking probabilities. Okay, there's still four cards in this deck. I know I haven't seen um, two of the planets, so if I draw this card from this deck, there's a 50-50 chance the plan a planet's going to come up. And I need a planet because um, each of the four things you're trying to collect to launch these missions, independently, you can spend these cards to trigger actions like shuffle up the decks and um, draw and play Go Fish, or literally dig the right card out of it deck, no matter where it is, or take cards from the top of the deck and put them in a storage vault so you can use them whenever you want. So, you're constantly in this tough, uh, 
uh, decision space of, do I use these cards that I need to launch the missions to instead manipulate the decks so that other cards that I need can come up so that I can launch the missions? And it's sharp. It's fun. As a solo game, I enjoyed it a lot. Jen and I also played it as a two-player game. And I've got to say, I've played all the Oniverse games... Instead of the second one that's never gotten a reprint. And I would have to say, this is probably the weakest two-player Oniverse game. Oniverse games are always designed to be solo, first and foremost. And they always work well solo. And again, this was a fun um, thought, a brain-burning exercise, probability. I'm trying to manipulate eight decks of cards at once to get what I need out of it. And I liked it as a solo, but when Jedi plays a two-player, like... This is probably Bears of Soul, and I've never really felt that way about other Oniverse games. So, as a solo game, I think it's wonderful. Especially, well, you almost... This is another thing about this one. All Oniverse games come with a collection of uh, modules you can turn on to mix things up and add more uh, variety to it. And usually on most of them, yeah, you'll want to turn on a couple of them randomly every time you play. For this game, you almost want to turn on three or all four of them to make the game at its full depth and breadth. Because the game, its core game, is a little too simple. So um, I found it's definitely best to play with all the modules or almost all the modules turned on. And definitely best to play it solo. If I were rating this only as a solo experience, it would be much higher on this month's uh, countdown. But rated as a two-player game, Stellarian comes in at number 12. Okay, then let's go on to number 11, Scorecards. Now, this is from designer Mike Fitzgerald, and that's Mike right there on the screen playing with a friend of his. I do not have a video, and there aren't very many videos of the game up because it's not actually widely available. I don't think it's going to be available direct from the publisher until May. Um, uh, so... I'm giving you a bit of a sneak peek. What is this game about? Well, um, it's basically trying to um, capture the same light-hearted, fast-playing, family-friendly spirit of an Uno-style game. It even kind of looks sort of Uno-ish with the bright primary colors and all that. But don't be fooled. Uh, this game has surprising hidden depths because uh, at the beginning of a round, you have a hand of five scorecards. You just draw them blind, and on your turn, you're going to play a card, draw a card. And that's that's all the rules for the game, because you play a card, do what it says, and then draw another card. And after you play through a few rounds, uh, whoever scored the most points wins. But every single one of these things tells you how to score points off the card. So every turn, what you're really going to do is play a card to score some points and then draw a new one. And the interesting thing is, these cards are all about saying, well, hey, if you've got a straight that starts with a three, you can get five points for everything in the straight. Or uh, if you can get a group of blue cards that are odd numbered, or if you can get a, a, you know, a group of sixes of any color, every one of them is going to be worth five points. And now you might think, well, all right, well, how's that going to work? Because I'm just playing one card every turn. How am I going to get a group of sixes? It's not just just your sixes you played. Once somebody plays a card to the table, everybody around the table has access to that card for their own scoring. And that's what makes the game interesting. You might look at a hand of cards and say, oh, I can't score any points off of this. I don't have anything that would feed it. But I will keep this card in my hand until later in the round because my opponents might play the cards that I need to make this a high score. And in fact, uh, since you play through multiple rounds, any cards you don't play, you carry with you to the next round. So you might carry one particular card that might be a huge scorer until halfway through the game. And round 
round three. Finally, everything's coming to place. I'll play this thing I've been carrying since the beginning of the game, and boom, I'll score 30 points off of this one card. And that's huge, because these cards often, you'll play a card, maybe you're only going to get two or three points, or five points, or a good card is, you know, 10 or 12 points. But there can be super cards played too. And at the end of every round, it, it, it doesn't matter how many points you got. There are uh, the overall game points are whoever scored the most total points on their five cards gets one game point, and whoever played the most valuable single card gets one game point. And after five rounds, I think whoever got the most game points wins. And so that means there's a wide variety of strategy. You could be playing garbage cards. These are all crap. I'm not going to get anything out of these cards, knowing that you're setting yourself up for just that one super card that'll be worth 16 points. And chances are that. That will win you the game point for the round, even if you saw everybody else was getting a lot of points. So it's sharp, it's fun, it's easy to teach, it's fast playing, and um, also, I should say, it comes in a bit lower because while I enjoyed it quite a bit, which is surprising because I don't like abstract games like this at all usually, um, Jen, she's the one who enjoys these, we found as a two-player game, it can be a little swingy. Uh, you know, there can be uh, swings of luck, but it doesn't matter because it's a 15-minute game. Don't worry about it too terribly much. Now, I would rate it much higher because I actually got to play the game with designer Mike Fitzgerald and some friends, uh, including Ruel, at uh, Dice Tower West convention. Uh, and um, the four-player game is a team game where Ruel and I were teamed up against Mike and one of his friends. And then you've got this whole extra level of depth and strategy because um, you can't tell exactly what's in your hand to your teammate and you have to kind of communicate non-verbally. And, and the other thing is, at the beginning of a given round, when you're playing the team game, I give you, I forget, I think two cards out of my hand, you give me two. So I know half of almost half of what's in your hand, and you know what I've got. And so we're like, okay, should you play? Well, I don't think you should play yet. You should wait till I can play this other game. And then it really escalates. I loved this game as a team-based uh, card game, and I think it's also really, really sharp at lower player counts, where you're just um, you know playing super fast rounds, super fast turns, draw a card, or, you know, play a card, draw a card, play a card, draw a card, Boom! Huge score in scorecards. So it's going to come in at number 11 uh, because it just didn't quite resonate with my wife as much as I thought it would. But actually, I, I thought it was actually very impressive. And I hope to get a chance to play it with Jen and Ruel someday as a team game. Uh, number 11, scorecards. <clears throat> then... Let's move on to number 10, Good Dog, Bad Zombie. Now, this is an adorable cooperative game, which is about exactly what you would expect uh, from the title. It's the zombie apocalypse. And in this game, we are not brave um, warriors fighting the zombies. We're dogs. We are dogs who are doing everything we can to fight off the zombies and save our loyal humans. We um, work cooperatively, moving around on a... A map of, uh, of New York City, but it's a map from the point of view of a dog. Um, you know that uh, you know the worst place in the world is the you know is the vet, and um, the boneyard is what they call the cemetery and stuff like that. There's a really wonderful sense of humor, and you really get to role play the idea of a dog because all of your powers are dog based. You can move; uh, it's a basic move, but you can bark and scare things away. You can herd stuff around, whether it's the humans you're 
you're trying to bring the safety or the zombies that you're trying to herd away from the humans and get them to fall off a cliff maybe to get rid of them. And um, it, it, it's, it's, I just cannot stress how incredibly sweet and charming this game is. I, you know, my wife and I are both dog lovers. My wife is a zombie hater. And yet she really enjoyed this game because you get to role play as these dogs. Each dog has their own unique special power depending on what their breed is. And um, on your turn, you've got a few basic actions you can do, but really the crux of the gameplay is you've got a handful of special cards that will let you do the more powerful actions, including the most powerful card of all, the good doggo card that lets you activate your own dog's special ability. And um, so on a given turn, you're trying to decide, well, okay, I can move over here. I could bark at this zombie that, and move the zombie over into that area. That would clear a path so that on your turn, you could actually lead that human to safety and bring him over to central bark. And every time you save a human, you unlock a new special power that we get to use uh, you know, later in the game. It's simple. This is definitely a gateway level game. Make no mistake about it. And honestly... Um, my wife loved this game. This was like in her top five games of the month. I think it's really good, but my wife was super swayed by the incredible charm of being a dog and using all these dog special abilities to be able to save all the humans. Um, I, I think it's charming too, but from a gameplay perspective, the gameplay is good. It's solid. It's well-considered. It has a nice, uh, you know, scalable difficulty level. And I think, honestly, I was really surprised. It's a keeper for us because Jen loved this. And, you know, if, if this were Jen's countdown, she would be putting it much higher. In fact, she did. We just filmed her Jen jog yesterday, which is a video that we do for um, backers of the show. You can hit that eye in the top right corner of the screen if you want to know more, where Jen ranks all the games we played. She ranked this much higher than I expected her to because the gameplay is good but oh my gosh the theme itself and the way it is integrated into the gameplay is just chef's kiss perfection uh, so um, it's really on the theme that I highly recommend and on the gameplay I kind of recommend I mean I, I recommend as opposed to highly recommend number 10 on the list good dog bad zombie Okay, let's move on to the next one. This one is Frontier Enchanted Land. And now this is a fantasy town city building game where there are two halves to the gameplay. The first half of the game is a uh, card draft. You know, a very, um, oh, what would you call it? Um, Seven Wonders Sushi Go style draft where we've got a hand of cards. I'm going to keep one for myself, hand the rest over to my neighbor. They're going to hand me some stuff. We're going to keep on doing that until we've got our final hand of cards. So we get our final hand of cards that which represent all these different fantasy buildings we can build um, in our town or resource generating cards that will give us the resources we need to build. And then we do it again. The first first half of this game is two back-to-back -back drafts where you are trying to get the right set of cards that will combine with each other, whether it's castles that want to be filled by nobility, whether it's uh, trying to get a set collection of different alchemist huts or whatever it might be, and you're looking to get the right ones. And of course, you're also trying to get uh, enough cards that will generate the resources to build the other cards. So the first half of the game is two uh, round-robin closed-hand drafts. And then after all that is done, ultimately, everybody has a hand, I think, if I recall correctly, of either 12 or 14 cards. And then the second half of the game begins. And in this second half, you have exactly eight rounds to get all those cards built. And every turn, you can put out uh, more resource-generating cards. Every turn, depending on what round it is, you'll also generate passively some resources. And you can build as many cards as you can and activate their special abilities. And that's where the game really 
flowers. And it's so interesting because you want to be able to get the most use. You want to be building stuff on every round of those eight rounds. But depending on how you built your perfect hand of cards, you might flame out early and be done. Oh, I built all my cards by round six. And it's like, oh, I've wasted round seven and eight because the powers of these cards is so varied. And by the way, I should say the presentation of these cards are wonderful too. They have such a lovely kind of child um, um, fantasy storybook look to them. And um, so... Uh, it's all about perfectly balancing. I mean, some of these things will let you draw more cards in the second half of the game. You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't expect this. This completely changes how I'm going to try and get all these cards played. Both Jen and I were really impressed by this. Um, I figured it was going to be okay, but it turned out it was another keeper for us. I'm pretty sure. We want to play it a little bit more. Um, but I know everything about this game is fast, fluid, uh, and just fantastic. It just works so well. There is so much variety amongst all the cards. And again, I just love the look of these cards. Uh, you know, when, when you're playing with them. But, you know, they again, they have just such an interesting collection of, of uh, a surprising amount of depth. Uh, it's a big deck of cards. You're going to get a unique play every single time you go through. And yeah, Jen and I both really enjoyed number nine on the list. Enchanted. Uh, um, ah, uh, Enchanted. Or, I'm sorry, Frontier. Enchanted Land. You know what? I'm actually almost thinking about pulling a... I think I want to bump this up a couple levels. I think this actually should probably be my number seven of the month instead of my number nine. Just thinking about it more and looking at these cards and remembering, I don't think I was giving enough credit. Folks, um, it's uh, actually... Actually... Um, where is it? I'm doing things out of order. Uh, Frontier Enchanted Land was my number seven of the month, let's just say. Okay, then, now, now that we've done things out of order, let's talk about my number nine of the month, <laughs> Motor City. Hey, you know what? Sometimes, folks, uh, you know, I just get so... Ah, anyway, Motor City is the latest crunchy, heavy, combo-laden roll-and-write from uh, Pinchback and Riddle. You know, previously they gave us Fleet the Dice Game and then Three Sisters, and this is like the third game in their trilogy of uber roll-and-writes, where you actually have two sheets of paper and you have so many opportunities for things to co combo and collude with each other. And just like those previous two games, it's really sharp. It's driven by an excellent dice drafting system that is similar to... Um, 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 the, uh, the, the first one, uh, Fleet the Dice Game. But the dice are multi-use. Every die you take, depending on where they get placed on the draft board, uh, lets you activate one of the core actions of running your auto manufacturing facility. But they also give you bonuses that you need as well. And actually, it's interesting... Unlike most roll and writes that have just you doing simple little fast actions, and every once in a while, boom, you get a big combo. Ever since Gone Shown Clever, that has become kind of a de facto standard for roll and write design, roll and write 101. This game's very different because every turn you take, when you take that die, you get a bonus off the board, you get to do the action the die tells you to do, and then you get to use the die as a worker placement action. So each turn, you are doing three turns worth of actions, if you were to think of it in terms of like a standard roll and write. And that means this is not little turn, little turn, little turn, little turn, little turn, little turn, big turn, little turn, little turn, big turn. It's like every turn is a big turn and sometimes there are super turns. And that's a really nice change of pace. I really appreciated it. So why did... Um, oh, shoot. It's not been on the screen this whole time. Why did Motor City come in at number nine this month? Uh, folks, I'm a little out of practice doing these roundups at home. Anyway... 
Why did it come in at number nine? Um, basically, there's one thing that I found myself missing, especially when I went back and looked at Fleet the Dice Game. The game doesn't really have anything along the lines of unique player powers or you know secret objectives we're trying to pursue. Every time, I mean, you know, the the dice themselves give you a lot of variety as to what's going to be available to you. But the, every time you sit down to play, it's going to be the same basic setup, and that's the one thing that's missing. If if every time you played, you had a different player power, or every time you played, you drew three and kept one objective you were trying to do. So they just gave that extra little juice. That's what I think the one thing this game is missing. Uh, Because otherwise, it's very, very sharp. I think of the three games, my favorite is still Fleet the Dice game. But I am not um, uh, counting out number nine, Motor City. Then, Then let's move on to number eight on the list, Dice Colony. Okay, um, so, yeah. uh, This is another roll and write. uh, Certainly much lighter than... um, uh, Motor City, the other one that I had talked about this month, but I liked it better. Um, you know, it's interesting. This is kind of you know as as we find uh, Roland Wright's just pushing for bigger and crunchier and heavier and more robust. You know, like your Hadrian's Walls and your Three Sisters and your Motor Cities and all that. It was kind of nice to find a uh, Roland Wright that is very simple and streamlined and straightforward, and yet is so full of tension and angst. And you know, reading to the heart of rolling every round in this. Um, uh, what do you call it? Terraforming game. This could be terraforming Mars, the Roland Wright, quite frankly. Well, I mean, in terms of theme, anyway, because we're on a planet. We're trying to build colonies. We're trying to bring water. We're trying to mine ore. We're trying to bring vegetation, and we're also trying to spur life on the planet. And the way we do it uh, every round is three dice are rolled, and bingo style, everybody gets to pick one of those dice. And um, if it's a red die, it's ore, you know, mines. If it's a green die, it's vegetation. If it's a blue die, it's water. And so you're going to put on the hex of the map another ore mine or another... uh, You're going to expand a lake or whatever. But here's the thing. The color of the die tells you what you're going to put on the board. The number tells you where you're going to put it. Because um, there's like a compass. Two is, if I recall correctly, you have to place those the blue to the water in the um, to the northeast of any of your existing occupied spaces. Whereas if it was a five, it's the southwest. And so, like, I need this water, but it's a five, which means I have to put it to the southwest of something, and that means I can't put it at the lake that I'm trying to expand over here. But now I could expand it off this colony that's fairly close, and then maybe get another one because now that I need now because I put this five over here, if I get another water uh, to put it in between to connect all these lakes, I would need a, um, a, a a blue four or a blue one, and so my chances increase exponentially that I could join all these later because this is a game all about um, you know trying to figure out how. Are you going to expand? Because every time you play, three random cards are chosen that are objectives everybody's chasing after, and um, you're trying to make big, bigger and bigger groups of contiguous groups of the same type of stuff. Because the bigger a group is when you claim it, the more life you bring on the planet, which is another way that you can fill up spaces and score points. But to make colonies, um, you need to surround completely surround a given hex space with a variety of different types of things, so that that colony is worth more points because it has access to more stuff. And so you've got this really interesting. Um, dilemma. I want variety all over the place for the colonies. I want homogeneity or homogeneity 
the homogeneous uh, choices, I want clumps of the same thing so I can get bigger groups and score points that way. And of course, the dice on top of that will never get you what you want. But if you can unlock energy, then you can manipulate the dice, increase or decrease them or change their colors. Honestly, Jen and I were both very impressed by this game. I think this is probably going to be a keeper for us as well. It's light, it's fast, it has a lot of variety, it really feels different from game to game because of the variable setup you get from the different public goals you're chasing after. And yeah, it's just tension-filled from start to finish. Very, very impressive little title. Number eight of the month. Dice Colony. Okay, now let's uh, jump ahead a little bit because uh, I'm doing things out of order and talk about number six for this month. Meadow Downstream. Now, I covered Meadow a few years ago. I think I was one of the first channels to cover it, and uh, I could not stop raving about how amazing it is. And Meadow continues to be amazing. It's absolutely gorgeous. It is a card drafting game where we are trying to grab the right cards to um, get access to the resources that different things in a meadow would give us so that we can play other cards. But the problem is, when we play these other cards, we cover up our old cards, thereby saying goodbye to the old resources and replacing them with different resources. So the core game is brilliant. This uh, first half of the game is playing these tokens uh, to indicate where you grab cards from a... Um, oh my gosh, come on, show me... I would Give me a picture of what I'm talking about! Okay, all I can get is pictures of the expansion. Of course, because I'm looking at the expansion on BoardGameGeek. Is there just a picture of the actual original game? No, there's not! Why is there not? Oh my gosh. Um, let's see here. There must be one. Just a picture of the whole thing set up, please. Although maybe I can understand why there's maybe not a picture of the whole thing set up. Because skipping ahead, playing um, with this expansion makes the game such a huge table hog. Finally, a picture of the actual original game. Okay, so... I'm sorry, maybe you don't even need to do this. You already know what uh, um, Meadow is. But half of the game of Meadow is grabbing cards from a grid by playing little tiles that are numbered one through four. And if I play a four in a given row, that means I take the fourth card from the row. Hey, it's some earthworms that give me access to grubs I need, but um, it covers up the, uh, the the other terrain I might have needed or whatnot. Or, you know, or, you know I, I grab this bug, but now I don't have access to the flowers I need for the other thing. That was the core crux of the game. I spent way too much time talking about that. A meadow is brilliant. Now, I need to go back to those 50 billion pictures of meadow up, uh, downstream. Meadow Downstream adds an entirely additional board to the game that, like I said, makes the game huge. It takes up so much table space now because there are there was already 16 cards to draft from. Now there are an additional six over on this other board um, that you can use your chips to grab. And in fact, each player gets another chip. So the game gets like 20% longer because every round we're going to take an additional fifth turn every round with this additional additional new board we're interacting with. And the new cards we're getting from this new board, which are all um, animals mostly based on aquatic stuff, you know, fish and um, and you know river environments and stuff like that. And uh, oh my god, as always, the game just looks absolutely stunning, all these new cards. But a lot of these cards let you move your canoe further and further down a river to unlock other bonuses as well. So, in a nutshell, this um, basically is an expansion that adds a bunch of new cards and a new way to draft and get those cards, a new opportunity to score points, and all of that is awesome. 
I love all of it. The thing that I was a bit less excited about is the fact that um, they literally increased the game length by about give or take, 20%. And I think that pushes, for my taste, the game a little bit longer than it needs to be. My wife did not mind at all. She was completely transfixed by the game from start to finish. But I think with down, I'm really bummed, hugely bummed, that they uh, didn't do a thing where they're saying, hey, you know what? Um, with the downstream expansion, you're still only going to play four of your tiles every round instead of now playing five every round. It's just you have a fifth one you can choose from. So every round, there's going to be one tile you don't use. Something like that to keep the same length. And yes, increase the depth and breadth and complexity, but not increase the game length. Something like that would have about made this perfect for me, and it probably would have come in at number two or number three of the list. Uh, and again, I cannot stress... The game is still amazing, and there's so many cool new ideas and um, you know concepts added. I love this expansion. I just wish it didn't make the game significantly longer to play, which is why Meadow Downstream comes in at number six. Okay, then let's move on to number five, the Queen of Hansa, or Hansa, I guess. Which, unfortunately, there are not very many pictures of this game on BoardGameGeek. But here's a nice-looking one. In a nutshell, this is a game where we are trying to uh, set-collect cards to uh, you know get majorities in different colors to score lots of points. And the value of those different colors are changing, uh, increasing or decreasing, depending on the actions we do. That's the, you know, the core structure of what we're trying to do every round. Grab another card and play it to our tableau so we have majorities in the red or the blue or the yellow or whatever. What makes the game interesting is the way we get the cards. Because on your on your turn, you have two cards in your hand. Say you have a red and a yellow card. That means you're going to play either the red card, adding it to your, your set collection of red, which will hopefully give you lots of points, because you're trying to maintain majority in red, let's say. But it also means you are then going to draft a card from the red section of the board. And um, it may be that, yeah, I want to get this red card played, because it's really important to me to maintain red, but there's nothing in the red section of the board that I actually want. And so, that's the crux. And oh my gosh, the glare on all these pictures. Um, anyway, that's the crux of the tough decisions you make every round. You're playing a card to score later so, um, and also draft a different card now that may or may not be useful for you depending on what your long-term plans and strategy is. And that is fantastic. Uh, the core loop of this game is fast and fluid and it just it just sings. It just goes really, really quick. Um, you know, the game over... Or is is a quick quick game? What does board game geek say? What is the length of a game for Queen of Hansa? It must be less than an hour, right? Yeah, thirty to forty five minutes, and I would say that's right. And it is a super engaging thirty to forty five minutes every step of the way. Every turn is interesting and compelling because of this core decision of what card am I going to play for future um, point gain. But at the same time, considering other cards I want to draft right now. That does not get old. It's fun from start to finish. And uh, yeah, both Jen and I liked it a lot. My only complaint is it is still an area control game. And boy, I wish we were kind of doing something else other than just trying to beat players. And I do think it'd probably be a little bit better at a higher player count. But still, I think this is another keeper for us because it just works. Such a simple, clean, elegant system. It feels like it's a game idea that came out a hundred years ago. You know, I mean, it's been around since the earliest. It feels like an early Kinesia design, quite frankly, and yet it's not. It only came out a few years ago in 2019. It didn't really get much attention, unfortunately. This is from a small Japanese publisher, if I recall correctly, which is a real shame because the gameplay is fantastic, and that's why Queen of Hansa comes in at number five on the list. Okay.
Then we get on to number four on the list, the paperback 10th anniversary edition plus typewriter. Yes, folks, for the first time ever in a roundup, I'm doing double duty. I'm putting two games together in one entry because as it happens... Well, um, Ruel did a sponsored preview of Paperback 10th Anniversary Edition for the channel. Link for it is down in the show notes, of course. And um, this new 10th Anniversary Edition adds so many wonderful, cool new things to one of the greatest deck builders of all time. I mean, this is a deck builder that I think I put on my top 10 must-have. If I could only own 10 games, one of them would be Paperback. I put it on um, that list because it's just about perfection because it is Dominion deck building crossed with Scrabble wordplay and um, those two tastes taste so great together, it is more than the sum of its parts. So, Paperback has always been amazing. The 10th Anniversary Edition comes along and adds, well, what um, Ruel demonstrated in his run-through, a brilliant new solo mode, which is so cool. I am hoping, 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 before time is up, that they modify that so it can become a co-op mode as well. Because the solo mode is Fantastic. Again, check out Ruel's run-through. Um, if you like deck builders or word games you and you like solo games, it is worth checking out. Because this solo mode is worth the price of admission by itself. But that's not all. I'm so excited about the other stuff that happened with Pan... Um, Paperback, 10th Anniversary Edition. Like, um, well, they've added new types of cards. Uh, one of them are these very, very cool... Um, well, what do you call them? Um... Uh, genre cards, where at the beginning of the game, you say, hey, yo, I'm going to do the horror genre, right? And that gives you a series of objectives you're trying to complete during gameplay. And every time you do, you mark progress on them. And once you, uh, you know, because you have certain actions you're trying to do. I love bringing objective-based gameplay into paperback. And then the cool thing is, as you're doing them and you're flipping them over, what you're ultimately making is a full paperback, a uh, full-sized uh, page paperback, which is just fun. And that's unfortunate. That's a, a heavily green screen one. But then also, if you'd pull it off, you're getting victory points at the end of the game. So you're giving yourself in-game goals also. These genre cards, and you know the genres are horror and science fiction and time travel and fantasy and romance and literary fiction and westerns, uh, you know, they're all so cool. So just adding these, this big, huge deck of genre cards, really soups up, ramps up the game to a level it's never been before. But that's not all. I can't show them, but they are also introducing this concept of unlockable cards, where, uh, if I were to flip these, uh, they'd literally be spoilers, so I'm not going to show them. If you want to know what they are, ask for... Down in the comments. Ask in the comments, and I'll kind of do a spoiler for what the unlockable cards are. But, um, basically, the game comes with a series of achievements you want to do over multiple games to unlock more and more and more of these. And let me just say, these are game changers, too, that really enhance the feel. But that wasn't all. Um, I'm trying to remember. There are so many elements. Uh, more typo cards, which are from the abridged uh, expansion. The genre cards are a big deal. Oh, it's a little thing, but this is, uh, to me, very important. The original paperback, everybody starts with the exact same deck of cards, but no more. Now, everybody still starts with those same basic consonants, the, uh, the RSLs and all that, but one of your basic consonants has a special power on it. So everybody has a, a letter they like more than everybody else because it helps speed them up. And instead of getting a bunch of wilds, you still get wilds, but then you also get a tougher consonant that um, gives you extra bonus if you can make super words. So what this means is this uh, changes the starting hand and everybody has a unique deck. That is awesome as well. So 
as a longtime huge fan of paperback. This 10th anniversary... Oh, and if all that weren't enough, they've got a whole slate of some of the best artists working in board games to give us a whole bunch of new art as well. Vincent Dutre art and all kinds of art. The original art was amazing, but now there's even more cool art if you get the super deluxe 10th anniversary edition. So, I'm excited about all of this. Um, and that's what brings in at number four. But then there's one other thing I need to point out. On this uh, crowdfunding campaign which is only running for a couple more days, there's an additional little celebratory game called Typewriter that is available to get as well. This is another word game, and it's kind of like, what if you crossed Scrabble with uh, Bananagrams? Um, Because, basically, the whole game is just a uh, bag full of chips that you could just bust out and play at a pub anywhere you want if you want to have the ultimate in portable analog word games. Not word with friends digital stuff, but real physical things where you're trying to do wordplay. And it's a really sharp little game as well. There's on the Kickstarter page, um, you know, Tim Powers does a full preview of it. But actually, I think these little animated GIFs do a good job. On your turn um, in Typewriter, You've got a handful of chips that represent different keys on a typewriter. You're trying to make a word. And um, if you do make a word, every chip that was in that word um, either has the chance to be scored, so you turn it into points, or if you don't score it or you can't score it, you flip them over um, so that they end up becoming something else. An S becomes a wild card. Or an N flips over to become a cool special power. Because that's the other thing. On the back, of a bunch of these tiles are cool special powers. And so, over the course of 10 rounds, every round you're also going to get another chip. So sometimes you're storing your chips away to turn them into points, uh, which means maybe you're throwing away special powers or whatnot, or making it harder. Uh, Because if you get rid of your S, which is the easiest letter in the universe to use, um, but you turn it into points, hey, you need those points, but you need that S. Are you going to get rid of it, or are you going to get rid of something else? But the other thing is, when you're trying to figure out what word you're going to make, you're also thinking about what are on the other sides of these chips. Because if I put this in into this chip, it will flip and become a special power or whatever it might be. And I want that special power. So I am bending over backwards trying to make a word that will use that in so that I can flip it so I can get that special power and use it next turn to do double scores or to draw extra tiles or to change the, you know, the offer. All kinds of different special powers. And this is neat. This is fun. I mean, again, I think the real strength of Typewriter is it is the ultimate in analog portable word games. Just easy to set up, easy to play, fast, 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 um, with still some of the tricks of paperback, like trying to, un- you get to unlock super powerful vowel cards by making really long words and all of that. So if you like word games and you like fast, fun um, games that you can carry with you anywhere, you might also want to check out Typewriter, which is also available as part of of the paperback 10th anniversary um, crowdfunding campaign, which, as I mentioned, just ends in a couple of days from the time I am recording this right now. So you don't have much time left, folks, to check out the best version of paperback ever and um, also typewriter. Okay, so that was number four on the list. Let's move on to number three raising robots. Now, I should say, uh, this was a uh, sponsored preview that I did for the publisher. Uh, Its Kickstarter campaign, I think, is going to be launching 
um, in uh, in May, uh, early earlier mid May. And what is this game? This is a game where we are young child inventors trying to make a series of awesome, adorable looking robots. The coolest looking robot art you have ever seen, quite frankly. Although I have to say about the art, do not be fooled. This game looks at first glance like a you know for kids game or you know a family gateway style game. It is not. It is from the designers of Stockpile, which was a very rich and deep stock market uh, simulation. And while this game looks, um, you know, almost juvenile and childish with this awesome, awesome robot art and kid art and all that, it's actually an incredibly crunchy triple engine builder game. And if I had to summarize this game, if I had to give it an elevator pitch, I'd probably call it um, uh, uh, Wingspan meets Race for the Galaxy. Because like Wingspan, you are working on three separate parallel engines, building robots that can do all kinds of stuff and then trying to run those engines and ideally trying to make engines where, hey, the stuff that this engine produces will help me in this other engine later on. That's fantastic in Wingspan. It's fantastic here. But then I say it also has shades of Race for the Galaxy or heck, Earth. You know, the more recent uh, one that was talked about earlier in this video. Um, Because... Every round, every player has a hand of the five actions we can do. We can upgrade our robots, we can build robots, and we can run our our design robots, our fabrication robots, and our recycle robots, right? Those are our three engines. So every turn, um, I'm going to pick two of those five actions to do. And I am going to assign them to randomly drawn energy cards. And the thing is, everybody knows I've got a bunch of recycle robots. Everybody knows I'm probably going to run recycle. And here's the deal. If the energy card that I assign the um, the my my recycle action to overproduces energy, because uh, some do and some don't, that means I put energy into the common pool. That means everybody, not just me, but everybody, gets to do a recycle run. But I might put that recycle on my other energy card that doesn't overproduce, which means only I will do it. So unlike a lot of these games where, oh yeah, you love recycling. I bet you're going to do it every turn, aren't you? Uh, yeah, you can still have that, but you have to wonder, which which uh, form of energy am I going to pump into my recycle? Will you get to piggyback off me or not? And that adds this whole extra level of depth and complexity in mind games, trying to figure out what is it that your opponents value so that you can make the right moves to piggyback off of them and get extra actions that you didn't have to pay for. It's great. It's beautiful um, with, again, the really cute, bright, colorful, cartoony art. And it is crunchy. Uh, Do not judge this book by its cover, folks. uh, My run-through for it will be coming soon in time for the launch of the uh, Kickstarter campaign. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend checking out uh, because it is my number three of the month. Raising Robots. But then we move on to number two, Your Best Life. Now, uh, this is a, uh, I want to say roll and write, but I guess you call them flip and fills because instead of rolling dice, you flip cards. And um, this is a game where the subject matter is trying to live your best life. Uh, You have life goals of things you want to do that bring you joy. You have... um, uh, you know, all different kinds of things. You could try to pursue career. You could try to pursue relationships. You could pursue money. You could pursue um, love online because uh, social media likes are a thing that are kind of like a wild bonus. Or, or actually, luck is a wild bonus, but um, likes on social media can give you stuff. And um, yeah, it is a game where we play through, I, I think, I want to say it was eight rounds, or maybe, you know, it was 10 rounds, which I guess each round represents like. Uh, 
half a decade or something like that of your life as you're trying to chase after your long lifetime goals while still just trying to be healthy and happy and in a lot of ways interacting with other players. Because, I mean, there are some actions like vacations that are so expensive that it's hard for you to do it by yourself, even though they can be a huge, valuable influx of resources and knowledge and experiences. But um, if I if I look around and say, oh, uh, this round, I the card I chose, because there's four cards that give you a different collection of attributes. That you, so I could choose the card that will give me a like on social media and some knowledge, but it will also stress me out, which means I have to roll a stress die and it might fill my stress meter up. Or there could be this really chill, laid-back one that actually relaxes me, but um, only gives me um, one social. I, I, I go out and hang out with friends and I relax, so my stress meter goes down, but that's all I needed. I just needed my stress meter down and I needed the... Uh, Oh, what do you call it? The the social, because that let me um, get married, right? And, or, you know, it let me cross the progress line on my social meter that gave me some money. And now, all of a sudden, in addition to everything else, I'm starting to do a combo chain. I've got money. And I might look over and say, oh, I see you chose a card that gave you money. Hey, do you want to join up? And I'll spend half, and you can spend half, and we can go on a vacation together. And we can split the rewards of that vacation. So, this game um, has a, you know, it's interesting, too, because you could play it as a single. You're a single person throughout your entire life, or you can play it as a couple. Where I've got my character board, you've got your character board, and we have a communal family board. Where we're both working, and we both have to get our final score up to score at the end of the game as a couple. This is an interesting game. You could play this as a six-player game. Two players are a couple, and the other four players are all singles. And yet it all works out uh, in the final scoring to see who wins. And yeah... I love it. I love this subject matter. I love rolling rights. I love big, crunchy, uh, chunky, combo-laden rolling rights, which is what this is, definitely. Uh, you know, much like... Um Oh, what was I talking about? Um, you know, earlier I was like talking about you know Fleet the Dice game or Gone Shown Clever. This game has all of that kind of combo chain um, setup and payoff going on, but it has probably my favorite uh, setting for any roll and write or uh, flip and write ever. It's my number two of the month, and my wife loved it as well. Man, we both love this game so much. Your best life uh, coming soon. And finally, uh, it's a stores. I'm not covering it necessarily. Although, actually, the voters might choose it. We'll see what happens. But I've got one more to talk about. My number one of the month has to be an expansion for one of the greatest um, co-op games of all time, The Loop. And the expansion is The Fur Brigade. The Fur Brigade. And unfortunately, there are almost no pictures of this on Board Game Geek. I think the best we can get is a picture of the back of the box, right? Although that is uh, German. Let's go on ahead to the English back of the box, shall we? There we go. So, what do you get with the Loop Fur Brigade? You get two new playable characters. They are the Fur Brigade. There is uh, Katruman the Black and Arsene Lupus. Uh, it's a dog and a cat you get to play as, although the dog is really more of a Victorian-era werewolf type. Um, and, uh, you know, they come with their own deck of unique cards. So, you, I mean, just like er- the other expansions in the base game, every player has really cool, unique uh, special powers that make them feel so different in this cooperative battle to stop Dr. Fu from destroying the space-time continuum, like always. Um, but the Loop Fur Brigade adds these playable characters and adds a couple of new concepts. Um, I forget what they're called. They're kind of like super black holes. 
one time and then they're gone abilities. But then there are other abilities that let you create these new tokens. In addition to the warp tokens that are appearing all over the place that we have to get rid of, the energy tokens that appear all over the place that we can use to power our efforts to stop Dr. Fu, there's now these black tokens. And these are effectively teleporters. You can consume a teleporter to teleport to where the black token is. So in a game that is so much about trying to be in the right place at the right time, you have more powerful tools than ever before to get to the right place at the right time with all these cool new abilities. And um, you know, and the two new characters, of course, well, the uh, werewolf one definitely is uh, you know encouraging you to do black holes specifically to create more of these black um, cubes so you can tell around, teleport them around more quickly. Uh, the cat, their main thing is they have a bigger hand of cards than ever before, so they can just have really much more powerful turns in general. And um, yeah, the loop is fantastic. These two new playable characters and a big bunch of new cards. No new game modes or anything like that, unfortunately. But still, I'm just happy to have more content for one of the greatest co-op games of all time, The Loop, which is why The Loop Fur Brigade comes in at number one um, this month. Phew! Oh, I can't believe we made it, folks. I can't believe you're still here, which means you must be a super fan, just like all of these folks, the ones zipping by. Uh, these are everyone who actually supports the channel on Patreon or here is uh, YouTube members. Thank you, every single one of you. But I also want to do a special thank you to the high-level backers. So let's get to it. First of all, uh, KB. Kisa Griffin, Heather Udarian, Mike Bloom, Adrian Dong, Chris Steele, Eric Z, Victory BHG, Dan Halligan, Jeff Young, Hans Peter Bach, Caitlin Albert, Steve Ercolini. You are all my best friends now. Thank you very much for helping keeping Rotto running. But anyway, let's move on to uh, Kevin Bertram, Graham Wallace, Asus Samleonis, uh, Blake Wilson, Mom Gamer, Amy Adams, Jerry Reese, Dave Salvatore, Jeff Glazen, Sharon Laubach, and Stacey Lee. You have all achieved alpha level superstar status status you're my favorites now forget about all those other ones oh thank you and yes and thanks to everybody else but finally lex davy davis uh charles hill jay huber marilyn uh cheryl howard demnois 2030 ce selma lee jimmy schroeder hansen nicholas elkins cobra misfit chris arnold cameron zafar dennis entry inti marlon cruz and dr foo we need to work out some kind of secret handshake some kind of or something, because you're the best. Thank you all for supporting the show. And thanks to the rest of everyone else. Folks, hopefully you enjoyed it. We'll be back again next month. Uh, let me know what you think about all these games down in the comment. And otherwise, have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long, goodbye. And hey, why don't you click on something? Click, 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 clickety-click.